everyone, welcome to Handing the Shame Back, a channel dedicated to survivors of sexual abuse. We know the numbers are huge and we know that this is a safe place for you to land, whether you're observing and watching other survivors and their stories, or whether you're on the show and you're sharing yours. Whichever way, I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. Um, we, as always, have a trigger warning with the show. Something you may see or hear may trigger you. In that case, please do stop watching. Go to the show notes below and you'll be directed to some resource and support. Got an amazing guest for you from New York. His name's Nathan Spiteri. He is a survivor, an advocate, a writer, and of course he's an actor because that's what happens. Survivors are amazing and do so many things. Um, so he's here to talk to me today and uh, share with us his story. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Thank you so much. It's it's really nice to be here and and I just want to applaud you for the work that you do and the people you speak to and the um yeah, the healing that you're doing around the world to to survivors and and to listeners. So it's an honor to be here and to be a part of this with you. Thank you, Nathan. That's beautiful. You know, as with with all amazing survivors like yourself, it's important for you or for me to allow you to share your story as as much as you're comfortable to. Um, and yeah, so if you're okay, Nathan, we know that you're in New York at the moment. I won't sing New York, New York. <laughs> uh, perhaps you could share with us just uh, at your leisure what your story of child sexual abuse. Sure, sure. So yeah, I am in New York, but I am Australian and I grew up in a little town just outside of Canberra. Um, so let's begin by, I guess, you know, as a child of the 80s, my parents would, you know, send me and my siblings outside to during the school holidays or summer holidays and say, don't come home until it's night. Don't come home until 6 p.m. for dinner. You know, it was a different time back then. So me and my older sister, I was eight years old. She was 10 or 11 at the time, so two to three years older than me. We used to ride our bikes down at the local swimming pool um during summer it was you know during the days when it felt like the whole town was at this pool everyone was there um this one particular day my sister left early in the afternoon with her friends and they rode off and she just told me she'd meet me at home and I was fine with that because I'd done that before I'd ridden my bike home before plenty of times End of the afternoon, there's literally probably two or three people left at the pool. I walked into the change rooms to get changed, to have a shower. And he followed me into the shower and, and raped me in the shower. In the shower. He cornered me and, and kind of slammed my head into the wall and and raped me in the shower. Who was this person? Was this someone known to you? Was this just a random person? Uh it was a random person, I guess. My 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 town at that time was probably about 20,000 people, 25,000. So it wasn't huge, but it wasn't tiny, tiny. Yeah. Um. So it was someone who I guess had been there and had been watching me and, and over time and kind of saw me as an easy target, I guess, because I was always there alone. 
or with my sister. And the first words he said to me after he he raped me was that if I tell anyone, he'll kill me and kill my family. So as an eight-year-old growing up in the 80s, you took that as gospel. That's what you thought was true. And, and you know, we didn't have mobile phones. We didn't have the resources we have today, the hotlines or any of that stuff, the internet. So I didn't tell a soul. I didn't tell anyone. Probably a month or two after that, we were back at school. It was after school holidays. So we were back at school. I was down at the local bus interchange. I'd ridden, you know, the bus down after school to the interchange. I was waiting to catch up, get another bus. And he just walked up to me, put his arm around me and walked away with me ever so calmly. And I recently spoke to my my best friend about that back then. And, and he said he just thought it was my dad or an uncle or a family friend just coming to pick me up to take me home because he just put his arm around me. I didn't fight back. I didn't push off. I didn't scream, yell, shout, nothing. And I just walked away with him. And that started this relationship with this man, as you know, as I, as I say. And it started out very rough and violent. He would beat me up, bash me, throw me against the wall, choke me out, make me pee my pants. Um, and then, you know, rape me, penetrate me on the couch. And the grooming, the lies and manipulation started straight away. This is what you want. Your parents hate you. I love you. No one's going to believe you if you say anything. If you do go to the police, you're going to get in trouble and I was going to get in trouble and he was going to get off scot-free. Um, so it was all of that stuff straight away. And again, you know, it's something that I believed and something that I thought was real. And he told me how special I was and how, you know, I'm a special little boy and no other boys like me and how much he loved me and how much I loved him. So this rough and violent relationship turned into a, a Stockholm syndrome type relationship where I felt love for this man, where I would ride my bike to his house because I wanted to see him. I would wait outside for him to get home. Um, and it got to the point where he, instead of abusing me straight away, he would ask me questions. He would give me food, give me ice cream, give me chips, cordial, lollies, you know, all that stuff. We'd maybe watch some TV. And then he would take me to his bedroom and rape me in the bedroom instead of, you know, on the couch. So it was much more loving and caring. He abandoned me when I was 13 years old. He disappeared out of my life. And, you know, for a few years, two years or so, I questioned who I was, what I was, where I belonged in the world, who I belonged with, my family, my, you know, my parents. Was I gay? Was I straight? All of these questions I was asking myself. At 15 years old, I would... You know, I live next to an industrial part of town, so I would ride my bike to this this part of town, and there were cruise lounges and sex clubs and gay clubs. And as a fifteen year old, I would sneak in. I would let these men rape me and abuse me again, and then I would turn around and and beat them up, bash them, rob them. And that was my fuck you the world. That was my way of coping. That was my way of feeling alive. Um, and look, I I. I don't love what you're saying, but you've got some amazing things that you're sharing. So thank you so much because you're doing a great job and, and our beautiful survivors watching are going to learn from this. One of the things you've mentioned is that you, at 15, then went actively, if you like, back into being abused and being able to retaliate. 
And for our survivor family, I think what's important is this. We become familiar, don't we, with ways of behaving. And one thing we need to know is we actually become, love to know what you think, Nathan, the age we were when we were first abused. So even though you're 15, the part of you that was first traumatized and raped is present during subsequent rapes, attacks, assaults by others. What do you make of that, Nathan? So absolutely, because all I wanted to do was feel I felt that same day, that first day. Yes. And that first days thereafter. I wanted to feel that 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 feeling again. I wanted to I wanted these men to hurt me, but I wanted them to love me at the same time. I wanted them to rape me and abuse me and then hold me and touch me. Um so yeah, I did go back to those those times as an eight year old because it was all I knew. You know, I was a normal kid. Then all of a sudden, I was this other person, and I had to do what I had to do to survive. I had to do what I needed. I, I and going back and being with these men and letting them abuse me was the only thing that that gave me life. That was the only thing that made me feel alive. It was the only thing that. And and beating him up and being violent was the only thing that that gave me my power back and was my fucking with the world. Well, and it, it was you getting mastery over a situation you couldn't possibly have when you were eight years old. So, you know, as children and teenagers do, we acted out what we needed to to make sense of it. And can yeah. you see how you kept doing that to try and make sense of this? Interestingly, and survivors, aren't we lucky having Nathan with us? Because interestingly, what you had was almost a, a being able to embody both aspects of this at the same time. So, for instance, with the grooming he did, usually and what I've experienced or seen over time with other survivors is you're either manipulated and flattered and given gifts and treats and, like you say, chips and, and soft drink and how are you and told you're special. Or, it's usually or, threatened, beaten, subjugated, abused physically and emotionally, and I will kill your family or friends etc. You had both. And I guess I, I'm just can just only even begin to grasp the confusion the eight to 13 year old you would have felt. Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of what was that? And was that real? And does he really love me? And am I really that special? And are all my friends not special because they don't have a man who loves him, loves them like he does me? And do my parents really wanted this? You know, did my parents not love me? And and will they be angry? Will they not believe me? You know, all of that stuff was going through my head twenty four seven, and and uh, you know the the depression hit straight away, and the um, 
imposter syndrome and a self-sabotage and this is what I deserve and I don't deserve love and I don't deserve happiness and I deserve to be miserable. I deserve to have this, this shame and, and, and this hurt put on me. Um, you know, and it, it started when I was eight years old and it went all the way through my life and as healed as I am today and as better, as good as I am today, I still feel those things sometimes. It's still there. It's always going to be there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this abuse with, you know, what I was doing with these men went on for, for, for many, many years. It went on for about 15 years. And, you know, I, from Canberra, I, I moved to, to Sydney to, to be an actor and I was a personal trainer, but I was there to study acting and, and I was doing some modeling up in Sydney and fell back into that world found the drugs, found alcohol, shooting heroin. I was smoking crack. I was, I was selling my body for sex. Um, I then got invited to, to New York to be an actor. So I moved to New York, studied acting, hoping to get away from that life and hoping I could start over and, and start afresh. And, you know, New York is a big, bad city and you can get what you want, when you want, how you want it, twice as cheap. And I fell back into it twice as hard, tried killing myself, hurt a lot of people physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, again, with the drugs and the selling myself, my body and, and shooting up and almost killed myself. And finally, I knew I had to change. I knew I had to do something because I was going to end up dead or in jail and my best friend at the time when she was done with me, she wanted nothing to do with me. So I asked her one last time to meet with me and then she can go and, and, and never speak to me again. But I finally told my best friend after 25 years of silent suffering, I finally told my best friend that I was raped as a kid. She helped me find a therapist through therapy. I, you know, I, I started therapy, group therapy, rehab, AA, narcotics, sex anonymous, and, you know, it's been 12 years of, of constant therapy and, and learning about myself and educating myself. And now my, I, I'm of an understanding of who I am and what I went through in my relationship with this man and with my family and friends and lovers and parent, uh, you know, girlfriends. And for me now, it's about giving back. It's about educating the world. And, you know, what happened to me happened for a reason and that reason is to educate the world is to save a life is to share my story story and if i can do that if i can help one person stop one person from killing themselves or going down the road i did then i know i've done the right thing here well you know you're to be applauded because you're so right till the day we die i think as survivors and and our beautiful ones watching will be nodding Till the day we, we die, there will be an impact. Make no mistake. It may dissipate, but it could blindside us. We just don't know how or when. So I think that's important. But, you know, equally, it's it's just we're just trying to make sense of what actually happened and how that could happen and how that person managed to get away with it and how... It started with something and then became almost, as you say, Stockholm Syndrome because the advantages, just breathe through this, Nathan, felt like some nice attention from an adult male where maybe that had been lacking a little. Do you want to talk to that a bit? 
yeah, like I, I grew up as a normal kid. I had a normal childhood and and whatnot. And then you know when this this thing happened to me, I just pushed my family away and I pushed my parents away and I wanted nothing to do with them. I wanted nothing to do with my siblings, with friends. And I would just sit in my room all day and play with my toy cars, or I would just sit at home all day and watch movies and and watch TV shows and want to get lost in these movies and want to get lost in these TV shows and pretend to be one of these characters. And, you know, as I said, I would ride my bike down to this man's house because he was the one who showed me love, showed me some kind of affection and, and yeah. And that was what I wanted. That was all I knew. And that was what I became used to. And that was the norm for me. So you know, it was a very confusing time. It was a very hard time. And and I remember when I first told my parents about this and, and their reaction to it. And, you know, growing up, my mom was a disciplinarian. My mom was a tough woman and would, you know, she's going to hate me saying this, but she was the one who used to hit us as kids. And, you know, it was back in the day when you were allowed to hit your kids. It's what happened. and we deserve to be hit sometimes let's not let's not joke about that or let's not pretend we didn't um but my mum wasn't the disciplinarian my dad was such a softy my dad had this you know the sweetest heart was the sweetest man and they came to visit me in new york probably about six months after i came out about six months to a year and me and my therapist came up with a plan to tell my parents and my parents come to visit me. We went to dinner and we, you know, sat away from everyone and we were outside. It was quiet. And I'm sure a lot of parents could relate to this. And I, you know, I said to my parents, there's something I really need to tell you. There's something that I, I need to share with you guys. And the first thing my mom said was, you've got a girl pregnant. And I'm like, no, you know, you're in trouble with the police. You owe someone money. Someone's after you and all those parent type questions. And I'm like, no, please just, just let me tell you. And I said, I was abused as a kid. I was raped as a child. And my mom was like, no, you weren't. No one raped you. No one hurt you. You were fine. You know, I said, no, I, you know, it happened at the pool. And subsequently it happened for about five to six years after that. And it was very rough and violent and this, that, and the other. And, you know, the first thing mom wanted to know was the who, the what, the when, the where, you know, all those, those questions. But then what hit me was my mom said, wow that explains everything about you now i understand why you were the kid you were now i understand the isolation and and just wanting to be in your room alone and not wanting to talk to anyone and not wanting us to touch you or love you or hold you or show any affection and and it just it made sense to them you know as hard as it was and and what you know what broke my heart was that, like I said, my dad was a softie, but then he, for the first time ever I've seen it, is my dad would just stood up at that time and was like, who is he? I want to kill him. Who is this man? And it was just so strong, so protective. And I was like, dad, please, it it, it doesn't matter who it was and it, it, it's done. And my mom just wanted to give me the, the hug of my life, or she did. And came over and just just hugged me, just gave me the biggest bear hug. And 
it was so full of love and caring and and she just wanted to protect me but i just wanted to get out of it so much and it was so foreign to me and i didn't know how to handle it it was so oh my god i i don't i don't want this please just leave me alone and and it was hard it was it was it was very hard but then the worst part was when you know we went back to my house and I slept on the couch. My parents slept in my bed and I just heard my mom crying all night and, and we didn't speak about it for about six months afterwards because I don't think they knew how to speak about it. They needed to process it. They needed to go through their own kind of understanding and mourning. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of guilt and blame on their part and I don't blame them at all. It was just me going from this normal kid to now being someone who is very, quiet and an introvert just wanted to be on my own and my parents and even my older sister thought that I was just a quiet kid and growing into my body and just wanted to be on my own and wanted to stay inside and watch movies and play with my cars and while all the other kids are outside playing in the cul-de-sac you know it it's it's interesting isn't it because that's so big the 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 amount of courage it takes to share with your parents who were doing the best they could with what they knew always. And the fact that as a child, being able to talk about what happened was unavailable to you as it is to our our survivors watching. It's almost impossible for us to speak. We know, for instance, that only 10 to 15% of children will ever talk of being abused to this day. But the point is, Nathan, just hearing you at the age of 32 telling your mum and dad what happened and then the bigness of their emotional reaction was enough to have you then back into needing to be a little withdrawn and a little quiet Mm. yeah because i just i didn't understand it no you didn't know it it was foreign to me all i all i knew was man and love for this man and wanting to be with this man as a kid now having my parents just want to love me and protect me and take care of me when all i ever did was push away from that yeah and not want to be a part of that not know that and you know, I remember being being a kid and my parents and my, I've got two brothers and a sister. Um, so there's four of us. So my brothers and my sister would always sit on the couch with my parents and they'd have their arms around them and they'd all kiss and cuddle and all of that stuff that parents do with their kids. I was always separate on my own, sitting on the floor or just sitting on my own little couch and just staring off into the onda or just watching tv and not talking to my family and not being a part of it not being intimate and again my parents just thought i was just a quiet kid who who didn't like affection except that prior to the abuse you were anything but prior to the abuse you were happy you were out there and you know as children do as you did as we all did we try through our behavior we can't say the words because something terrible might happen but everything about us is screaming help me yeah yeah yeah. not safe 
but you know i guess that shit doesn't happen in my town that shit doesn't happen in my family my parents are like, in australia does it no it doesn't just like it doesn't happen in new zealand yeah. <laughs> and it still doesn't happen come on Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> and you know my parents they were european and they just didn't understand and they didn't get it and as foreign as what i went through was to me it was even more foreign to them um yeah and even to this day we don't really talk about it they know and they just you know as long as i'm happy as long as i'm healthy that's all they you know want to make sure of and you know they'll ask me questions and how i'm doing and is everything okay and but we rarely speak about the abuse and even when i wrote my memoir and my mum my mum read it my dad didn't my dad my mum didn't ask me any questions about the man or about the abuse or about any of that part of my life she only asked me questions about the afterwards and the silly things i did as a result not the bad things but just the silly things i went through and because you really did that that was so silly and oh my god you're an embarrassment and this that and the other it was not about the the abuse and because she's still to this day that she doesn't know how to talk about it and deal with it no and i don't blame her at all i don't blame her at all no and she she did the best she could with what she knew but yeah we're at the end of part one and i think it's a great part to leave this at and and survivors you know there's so many commonalities here that you're going to be able to relate to or connect with and it's just so good to have such an eloquent um informed guest like nathan so thanks nathan um for you wonderful ones watching don't go away we're coming back with part two shortly and just know this as always i see you i stand beside you and I believe you.